Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Today, Global Council Chairman Peter Mandelson interviews a special guest, Director of London School of Economics, former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, Dame Manu Shafiq, on the topic of trust in institutions, economics and the labour market. Minush, we've had a fascinating breakfast discussion today in which a lot of people have commented about the loss of trust in UK uh, institutions among the public. At the London School of Economics, where you're the director, you've launched uh, a a project basically to rethink beverage and the welfare uh, system for the 21st century. What can that welfare state in the 21st century do, in your view, to address this loss of trust? Well, so welfare states are the way that we pool risk and we offset the impact of luck in life. People who have go through difficult periods are then supported by others. And arguably, part of the backlash we've seen in recent years, particularly against globalization, is because people feel that the system didn't support them in a difficult time. And I think many of the structures which are in place in the current welfare state didn't respond to the pressures that people are under. Do you think there's something more fundamental, though, feeling amongst the public that the way the economy and society operates now, we, 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 we tend to socialise the risk. I mean, the risk is taken on the shoulders of all of us, but too much of the reward is privatised. Well, that was definitely a sentiment during the financial crisis, yeah. and the costs of that were very real. The costs of bailing out the financial system were borne by all taxpayers, uh, and there was a sense that those who caused the crisis didn't suffer many consequences. Uh, So that is an issue. Um, And it's also an issue where I think the welfare state can, a rethinking of the welfare state can counteract that perception. Mm. I mean, as we face advances in technology and automation which threaten to replace uh, workers, which sort of compounds, you know, the restructuring of global supply chains, the deindustrialization de- uh, of our countries, and that shift from manufacturing to services. And you know, automation comes on top of that. I mean, what can we possibly offer to people who are the casualties uh, of those uh, changes in in retraining, in re-educating uh, the workforce? I mean. The Scandinavian system of flex security, where it both becomes easier, as it were, to to, to lose people from the workforce, mm. but also quicker to get them back into the workforce in a def- different area. Mm. I mean, how can we move towards that? Well, I think that system is predicated on serious public resources in skills development for for the workforce, and a better social dialogue between unions, business, and government. And we don't really have either of those at the moment. Um, And I think, you know, you look at Denmark, they spend 1.7% of GDP on workfare. That's a serious amount of money that is there to support people transitioning to new jobs. I also think on automation, uh, you know, there are very few jobs that will be fully automated. It'll be parts of jobs mm. that are automated, yeah. the bits that are repetitious and 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 repetitive. And uh, I think part-time work will become much more important if people can become much more productive by working alongside 
robots. Uh, they can work fewer hours. And the question is how to turn automation into an opportunity for productivity gains. And maybe people can get a bit more leisure as a result. Uh, but the key is to make part-time work more attractive and not precarious. Okay. What about the demographic dimension of all this mm. uh, and the issue of, uh, of our aging uh, society and that loss of trust amongst young people in the system who feel that there's an enormous amount now of intergenerational sort of unfairness. Mm. Now, mm. during the discussion this morning, there was an interesting sort of um, uh, disagreement. You were sort of saying, look, we've got to rebalance. We've got to rectify that intergenerational unfairness. We've got to mm. take, I'm afraid, painfully, some things away from the, from the older members of our society. Mm. But then somebody else came in and said, actually, no, we have to recognize the aging society by giving more to older people, mm. I mean, more opportunities to re-educate, retrain, to keep playing a role in society and in the workforce. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So I think... Um, Older people have done relatively well in recent years, mainly because of what's happened to asset prices and housing prices. Um, and I think it's legitimate to recoup some of that to redress the imbalance vis-a-vis -vis young people. But having said that, I completely agree that aging means everyone will work longer. And I think we have to be very uh, clear about that. And we have to put policies in place to support it. So, for example, you know, everyone knows retirement ages will have to go up. Why not just link retirement ages to life expectancy in an automatic way so governments don't have to go through the painful process of you know, adjusting retirement ages regularly? Um, and, why not, uh, and why not give people more resources to reskill? So I am completely supportive of the idea that people need to learn for life and retool many times. I think one of the challenges in our modern labor market is workers are much less attached to their employers. People change jobs much more frequently, which reduces the incentive of employers to invest in training. And so I think that means that we may need to think of a bigger public or government role to enable workers to retool, because I think firms will have less interest in making those investments. Okay. I mean, some people listening to this will think, well, really what Manoush is saying is that we just need more generous sort of welfare and social security policies. We need to spend more uh, on our population. Is that affordable? I mean, you know, let's not get into a Brexit discussion, but yeah. the truth is that as a result of Brexit, in the short and medium term at least, public spending is going to be squeezed, we're going to lose opportunities for further growth, and we're going to have a sort of smaller pie. I mean, let's not debate the long term, it might get better. Yes. But people will think that, you know, that, that what you're advocating is a recipe for higher public spending in a forthcoming period where, frankly, we're going to have to cut our cloth a bit better. Mm. There are some parts of the welfare state that are... Um, that are not very efficient at the moment. You know, I think some of the some benefits which go to those who are uh, less needy could be curtailed. But having said that, aging and particularly because of spending on health and social care will mean that more resources will have to be devoted to that. That is just inevitable, and I think one has to be. Where's the money going to come that. from? Well, I think there one has to look at wealth taxes. Uh, I think in, you know income. T I think income t taxes are. Uh, at a point where it's probably difficult to raise them further. They've reached a ceiling. Yeah, but I think wealth taxes are, 
are a definite possibility given the huge inequality in wealth that has emerged in recent decades. Okay, let me ask you two last questions. Mm -hmm. One about experts and the other about uh, the media and misinformation. I mean, on on experts, that's very much a sort of legacy of the financial crisis. Mm. You know, people do not want to hear from those who, you know, are in charge, are expert, are professional, when they see how much went wrong, mm. who shouldered the cost of what went wrong, and how many other people who were actually responsible got away scot-free. Yes. Um, how do we, how can experts, <laughs> such as yourself, uh, regain trust in, in the public eye? I think, there are, I think there are many things. First, one has to speak plainly and not hide behind jargon. Second, I think one has to acknowledge uncertainty. Some of these issues are complicated, and I think experts need to be a bit more humble. Um, and I think uh, working with people who uh, perhaps have more um, sort of more credibility in the public eye. People trust certain individuals, and I think working with them to enable them to, to, to be good advocates for good policy is, is also a potential area. I mean, I should say that most recent surveys in the UK show that trust in academics and experts has actually gone up in, recent, in, the, recent, in the last year, uh, and trust in social media has plummeted. And so I think people that's have a been, healthy sign. I, th I think that's a very <laughs> healthy sign because I think people have come to understand that actually a lot of the stuff we learn on social media is absolute rubbish. Um, and I think reminding people that, you know, not all experts know what they're talking about yeah. and one should rec recognize that, but ones who do, who subject their analysis to rigorous peer review, who get, you know, who, who publish the data that they're relying on should be given more weight than other voices. Well, let's hope that restoration of public trust extends to ex-politicians and ex-cabinet <laughs> ministers as well. Um, <laughs> last question about the media, though. I mean, we are in an era, famously, of post-truth politics and, and populism. There's an enormous amount of misinformation carried by social media. Uh, trust in that, you say, is falling. How can the sort of more conventional, traditional media fight back and play a bigger and better role in restoring trust? Mm. Well, it's interesting. Trust in mainstream media has gone up alongside trust in social media falling, which is very interesting. Uh, and I think, I think public opinion is shifting here and that the appetite for regulating platforms that deliver information has, has gone up. Uh, and I think there is a willingness to treat them much more as publishers where they're responsible for some of the content that they put uh, in the public domain. Uh, and I think also an appetite to regulate their effect on, on elections and politics. And I think that's appropriate. They are, have far too big an influence and matter way too much to public life uh, for it to be a free-for-all. One of the interesting points I thought made uh, at our breakfast was that it was about the sort of hollowing out of towns and smaller non-city, non-metropolitan communities and the gravitation uh, of everything really towards cities. Um, uh, how, I think this is quite important. I mean, towns, people are living in towns and, uh, and less populated areas are losing their voice uh, because of this sort of gravitation uh, towards sort of the inner city. Um, is that reversible or remediable in some way? Well, urbanization is one of the biggest 
trends in, in, in the world. More than half the world now lives in cities, which is the first time in human history that we are so urbanized. Um, and of course, that's because cities are huge generators of wealth and they're magnets for talent and, and economic activity. I think it's hard to see that trend disappearing, but I think what you can do is uh, create more power and voice in local communities so people feel that they have more uh, control over their local lives uh, and not everything is being decided very far away. And I think that goes to the issue of uh, decentralization and devolution and where decisions are best taken. I think also that, you know, I think one of the final points that came up in the breakfast was, um, you know, maybe we need a little bit of inefficiency in the system yeah. to keep our societies together. And to do what's right to rather do, than immediately profitable and to do what's good for people, not just what's legal. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes. And also, you know, cities are very efficient because you have economies of scale. Mm. Towns may be a little bit, little bit less efficient, but on the other hand, people may have higher life satisfaction living in that slightly more inefficient mm. place. And I think it's really the role, not so much of economists, but of politicians to weigh up those trade-offs and figure out where actually we may accept something that might be a little bit less efficient because it makes our societies better. That's a very good note on which to finish. Thank you very much, Marish. You're very welcome. Thank you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.